Welcome to Canqueer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And you are here in the building. In the building. It's always exciting when you're when you are on set, as it were. Don't lie, you liar. Stop lying. Well, no, I'm not lying. You are literally across from me. I could poke you if I was, you know, possessed by the urge. Uh I could do that, yeah. But I'm not going to because we've got gay things to talk about. And uh, you know what? I'm going to start off today with the gayest of all of the things. Oh, yes? What's that? I mean, I think we're going to start off with probably Eurovision. Okay. Because... I am obsessed. Okay. I am, I am a man possessed about Eurovision. Um, just, I mean, a lot of our, our members maybe don't, uh, our listeners don't, you know, know too much about Eurovision, but it's a big deal in Europe. It, they would have to be new listeners because we've been talking about this oh, for yeah, years. Yeah. Our longtime fans, they're like, oh, here he goes again yeah. with his Eurovision. <laughs> oh, I'll just, you know, to put it on mute, go get a cup of tea. But no, no, the thing about Eurovision, I grew up with it, but it's huge. Mm-hmm. And uh, the last one, Eurovision 2020, mm-hmm. it was cancelled in 2021 because of the pandemic. Yes. Um, first time in its, you know, 40 odd or 70 odd or however many odd years it is. Mm. Um, it's like 60, 70, something like that. Yeah. It's the longest running singing competition in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, shortly after TV was invented, Eurovision was invented. Actually, uh, sh- uh, about a decade? Not long after um, the Olympics were revived, Eurovision started. Mm-hmm. So if you were alive and aware of the media when the Olympics was revived, and that was like the 20s, I think, 1910s, 1920s, somewhere around yeah. there, then you would have lived long enough to see the start of Eurovision, and you would still be able to take care of yourself. Like, you mm-hmm. wouldn't be 100 or something. I know yeah. what I'm trying to say. It's a so valid like, anyway, <laughs> in the I think in the mid-2000s, like 2000s, the, the 20 zeros is... Um, the Eurovision judging criteria was rejected. Yes. Because they wanted it to be weighted differently so that nobody leaves with, you know, nil point. Yeah. And they believed that it was technically impossible to leave with zero points. Okay. Uh, but Britain is always up for a challenge. Yes. And uh, it was the... I think it was two countries that got nil point. Yes. But this is now the second time, I think, in a row that Britain has walked away with, with nil point. And it's amazing because this is the country that generated, like, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Tricky and Adele and the Spice Girls and 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 uh, uh, Beddington. can't remember the, the name. But anyway, like, so Natasha many... Natasha Beddington. No, Natasha Beddington. Oh, Beddingfield. Beddingfield. Yeah, no, Beddington... I don't know, the guy who started garage music. But, like, you know, and Blur and Oasis. And, like, huge, huge mm-hmm. names. Adele. Yeah. yeah. I already said Adele. Oh, you did? I'm, but she needs to be said twice. Like, let's be honest. Radiohead. Um, but, like, so many big names come out of there. And they are known for generally having the worst act. The Netherlands yeah. is usually top five or bottom five. Mm. They really split it. They, they never go halfway. Well, because Britain is one of the founding nations of Eurovision, they automatically get access to the finale. Yeah. So they're always going to be in finale, even though last year, or in 2020, yeah. not a single country's jury in the whole of Europe and Australia yeah. um, gave them any points. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. nobody liked their submission. And and weirdly, nobody listening liked yes. it either. I think we were sort of tepid on it. 
My um, favorite part, though, was whenever they actually cut to the singer from England, his response was, hey, free beer. Like, he did not care. <laughs> he was having a good time. Um, anyway, so the BBC had about 7.8 million viewers mm. during the grand finale of Eurovision, mm-hmm. um, which is the most viewers for a single event since the grand final of... Um, uh, in the UK that was hosted in the UK in 2014. Mm. So this is like, it's always a big audience draw for oh, the yeah. BBC. And they had about 1.5 million 16 to 34 year olds. Mm. So they know not only is it a big audience draw, it brings in a young crowd. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're big fans. So they've teamed up with TAP Music and they are a management and music publishing company they managed Dua Lipa, Lana Del Rey, Ellie Goulding. Yes. And I think the BBC is hoping to just find a song and a singer that won't upset the whole of Europe in one fell swoop. Yeah. Like, you know, they started at the bottom. There's only really one way. Well, there's two ways they could go, which is, you know, also yet again zero mm-hmm. <laughs> or any point above zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that the BBC is investing with a real music management company mm-hmm. to, to find some talent. Because we know Britain's got talent. Oh, yeah. Although that's a separate show. That's a separate but show. But we are aware that there is talent in Britain. For sure, yeah. Um, you know, can Britain get out of the doldrums of Eurovision? Who knows? And it's it's alarming because I don't know how many times... Like, every year, there's always, you know, Just Send, and then there's a name. Lately, it's been Just Send Adele. <laughs> um, but, you know, quite some time ago, it was, you know, Just Send the Spice Girls. But then they Ireland sent... Jedward and they did not do well. So I mean, Spice Girls is just England's. You Jedward. say Jedward didn't do well. You you take that back. They came in fifth, I think. You take that back. Yeah, the Spice Girls is not England's Jedward. They are. There is no. no. No, 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 no. I put Jedward, the Spice Girls, and Aqua in the same boat. They are not the Spice Girls, like multi-platinum uh, record-selling. Girl group. Yeah, like, but that's they, because England loves camp. They don't make good music. They but make they also, fun music. They did really well in Europe, really well in North America. You, don't you badmouth the Spice Girls. I will not. Because I, they I'm make not here for it. Very good club music. Spice Up Your Life is still a good dance song. What about Two Becomes One? No. When Two Becomes One. No, no, no. Don't. Don't. No. Okay. Th- no. That's fine. fine. <laughs> how dare you? How dare you? Um besmirch the name of the Spice Girls. Although a lot of people forget about holler, which is about pre-establishing a safe word before you engage in kinky sex. Hmm. A lot of people forget that Spice Girls sang that song. Now, pre-establishing safe words puts me in the mind of Canada's Drag Race, where I feel like anyone being judged should have established some safe words. It's a terrible transition. It's a terrible transition, but like safe words got me, reminded me of RuPaul's Drag Race Canada. Now you haven't seen it yet. They've only put out episodes one and two. You can catch it on Crave. We're not sponsored by Crave, but that's the only place that seems to have it. Are there any Montrealers there this year? There are a few. They're also quite talented. They had to dress up as their locales, like their cities. Okay. And both Montreal Queens 
dressed up as traffic cones <laughs> for, for the construction. And I tell you, I guffawed so loud the cat fled the room. <laughs> she was, I'm more than startled in the nearby animals because it was just so funny. How do you represent Montreal? Traffic cones. I mean, yes. Actually, so uh, I don't know if you knew this about me, but I spent a lot of time reading about urban planning. And uh, I'm kind of obsessed with urban planning. And Montreal is so tired of their bad reputation for bad traffic. They're just converting all the streets and trying to turn North America, uh, trying to turn Montreal into North America's most bike friendly city. That's mm. that's how they're dealing with the cars. Just get them off the road. Like yeah, this yeah. is this is how famous everyone driving a car complains. <laughs> so don't let them drive cars. Yeah, <laughs> complaints are down because there's no cars. It's not a bad solution. Not a bad solution. But last year. Uh, Jeffrey Bower Chapman really, and we talked about this in a bit of a follow-up episode, mm. where he was, the the judges were very critical. Yeah. Apparently, they were spoon-fed critiques that they had to say. Mm. They always had to say negative comments. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Jeffrey Bower Chapman had to go back and add voiceover ad lib, mm. uh, which also included some negative critiques. Mm-hmm. So he was not happy. Mm-hmm. And um, the producers of RuPaul's Drag Race were dragged to the ringer. Yeah. How much of it was Jeffrey Bowie Chapman? How much of it was the producers? Yeah. I think the producers were carrying a bit of weight there in terms of the tone, the choice yeah. of edit. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Because if anything else, let's say he was mean on his own steam, the producers still let it get into the show. Like, the show was mean. Yeah. Regardless of how it got in there, the show itself has a mean tone to it. So, Jeffrey Boa Chapman has a podcast that he actually interviewed Jimbo. Now, one of the critiques against Jeffrey Boa Chapman is uh, in the episode with Jimbo, he said, the week after Jimbo had won, won the, you know, the week's yeah. episode, said, welcome to the competition. And people read that as quite condescending. Yeah. But then in the interview with uh, Jimbo on his, on his podcast, he's like, I was edited out. He said, welcome to the competition. It seems like you're bringing your whole self to the performance. Mm. And I'm like, that's a good critique. That yeah. is that is genuine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, that small edit really changes the character of what was said. Mm-hmm. Now, I have watched the first two episodes of RuPaul's Drag Race Canada. Okay. Now, apart from, and this is my only gripe at the moment. Okay. Is... The gratuitous product placement. So when it comes to like podcasting and advertising, I mean, RuPaul is always like that because Drag Race. But, it's usually like Mac makeup. Yeah. Uh, so well, Shoppers Drug is now uh, Shoppers Drug uh, lifetime supply of, or your supply of makeup from Shoppers Drug is Ooh. one of the prizes. Um, it's neither top nor bottom shelf. It's, it's just, like mid shelf. Yeah. But I mean, this you can get some nice volume out of. Shop is drag. That's where you get your foundation. That's where you get your cold cream. That's where you get your basics. That's not where you get the good stuff. The thing that jumps out at me is there's two types of advertising. Sort of, uh, you know, product placement where you see it. Maybe there's a passing reference to it. And there's this sort of uh, more sort of native style advertising Mm. where they say, you know, for example, if we were to do it. You know, we do all our interviews on Samsung because the sound yeah. quality that Samsung gives us in our interviews is the best. Or the thing where, like, people drink out of cans, but the label is always facing the And then they talk about, oh, I can only drink cola. Cola is the only one that does blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So they start talking about, the judges start talking about DoorDash and how they're going to order, a, you know, a quick meal of DoorDash. Mm. It, was, it was awkward and clunky. Yeah. But... 
there is clearly a lot more money in the production of RuPaul's Drag Race Canada this year. Okay. Like, the stage is beautiful. Mm -hmm. The uh, workroom is beautiful. The artwork is astonishing. Okay. It looks like a higher budget production. Mm -hmm. And the judges are nice. Oh, okay. They are pleasant. They are offering, um, you know, it's an S sandwich, a poop sandwich. You know, when you... Butter them up with a compliment. You slip in a the cons- critique. A constructive critique. And then you butter them up with another yeah. compliment. I mean, there have been performances in the past where you make me watch with you. And I'm like, everything was terrible about that. The costume didn't make sense. It was poorly constructed. It was off theme, blah, blah, blah. Like, there's nothing good to say about that performance. But that's like once a season, mm. you get one performance that's truly terrible. And where there's nothing good to say about it. But generally speaking, like... They got on the show because they are among the best of the best. Yeah. It is exceptional for them to do something that has no positive commentary. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's alarming. Well, I was impressed by this new season. Not only is it evident that they're trying to be nicer. Okay. Um, and I, I apparently Brooklyn Heights was talking in an interview where she said that, you know, I think one of the reasons why the first season was as catty and mean is because it was also produced for a global audience mm. and Canada has a reputation of being pleasant and nice and mm. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, you know, very sort of friendly. Okay. And they wanted to maybe not fall into that stereotype but went way so far the other way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one is friendly. The critiques are constructive. Okay. And it is enjoyable to watch. But most importantly of all, which is why I think people should watch this season of RuPaul's Drag Race Canada is that the queens obviously saw season one and was like, I'm going to do better. Mm. All of the outfits are tens. Mm. Like, they are well-constructed, well-thought-out. Everyone there looks like they've been preparing for a while to to get into it. It's just everything about it is more professional, Mm. better budget, and nicer. Mm -hmm. It is currently... You know, we're watching the British Drag Race at the same time, and Canada's Drag Race is blowing Britain out of the water. Oh. It's just much better produced, much better talented queens. Yeah, it's really interesting. I just I bring this up because we talked about RuPaul's Drag Race Canada before, and this is such a gear shift in season two mm-hmm. that I think it's now worth watching again. Well, I mean, it, it's weird to see something produced in Canada that doesn't look excellent because we are basically Hollywood North. Mm-hmm. And like I, I saw something recently. Somebody, I think it's Hollywood Nord. Nord the Nord. <laughs> the uh, the the joke is that uh, uh, according to science fiction, when we finally get to an alien planet, we're going to find that the whole planet looks like the rainforests of BC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because <laughs> most science fiction, especially Stargate, was very guilty of that. But uh, a lot of science fiction, everything looks like the rainforests of BC. So. Yeah. Or um, if there's a deserted urban area, it's probably Hamilton. Yeah. Well, or there's that water <laughs> treatment. There's yeah. a water treatment plant on the outskirts of Toronto that they keep using as an asylum. So if you've ever seen John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, the, the asylum that they lock Sam Neill up in is actually just a water treatment facility that just happens to look spooky. Um, so, I mean, there's... Canada has weird architecture, but it doesn't matter. The, yeah, so the... There's so much TV production here and movie production happening on Canadian soil for them to just like yoink a really good lighting expert from some other production and say, would you be willing to do a six month contract between working with, Mm. 
you know, this famous director and that famous director, do you have six months off to just do, you know, Canada's Drag Race for us? It would be weird for them to not at least try to get the best of the best, because the best of the best, often sometimes the second best of the best, because the best of the best are in Hollywood. The second best come here and then they do, you know, science fiction scenes in the BC rainforest. Uh, when they have a little bit of time off, why not? Well, I think it was evident that they were able to pay for better talent. Mm. The flip side of that is the super awkward DoorDash in program ad. But I'm mm. willing to swallow the DoorDash ad yeah. because the quality of the whole program was elevated. You know, it was just, it was better on every metric. It just gives me nightmares of the late 2000s, early 2010s, when there were multiple TV shows that were ruined by Subway sponsorships. Mm. Specifically Subway. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was like super product placing yeah. Subway. Well, we're going to jump to our first track. This is uh, Je ne suis pas un robot um, <laughs> by Claude Lanthrop. And uh, it, we have three... French songs today, mainly because Stromae has a new song okay. that I'm, I'm like I want to talk about. But this is a Canadian artist. Um, I believe they're out of Montreal. Yep, from Montreal. And uh, we will be back just after. And we're going to have you pronounce all the French words after after this.
Hello and welcome back to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer major. My name is Stuluk Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And that was Je ne sais pas un robot. Je ne suis pas un robot. With, um, <laughs> by Claude Lanthrop. And uh, we are back and we actually wanted to talk about some great news out of Manitoba. Mm. Now, I think I mentioned last week that Britain believes mm-hmm. that the UK can be free of HIV um, as soon as 2030. They, oh, wow. They're looking at seven years being like, yeah, we can end it. I think they're being optimistic. Yeah, ever, about once a decade, somebody has plague. So, I mean, like, it's really hard to get disease. I mean, now we have a treatment for it because it turns out that plague is bacterially based. Mm-hmm. But, like, to truly eliminate a disease, like, people still occasionally get polio. Mm-hmm. To, to get it down to, like, to make it an orphan disease, like a, a disease so rare, most doctors don't know what to do about it, and they need to send you to a specialist. I think that is a realistic. Absolutely. Yeah. And the, the, I mean, not the great thing. The silver lining to HIV is that it is not airborne. No. It is not waterborne. You know, it, yeah. well, I mean... And it's really. very and it, sensitive. And it dies yeah. the minute it looks at out the outside world. Yeah. You know, it is a really yeah. weak disease. UV light, air, pretty uh, much acidity. Yeah. Anything and everything. Yeah. Um, and as our listeners know, it is a sexually, tra- sexually transmitted disease. Yeah. So, you know, as long as you're not sexually transmitting things, mm. you're not you're not carrying the disease. And with HIV medication now, mm-hmm. it can drive the, the, the disease to indistinguishable from gone. The viral. You know, the viral. The yeah. amount of virus in your body can be, you know, they can't say it's nil. Yeah. But it's as darn close as a scientist will ever admit yes. to it being nil. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, un- undetectable equals untransmissible. Mm. And people were on medication, taking it as prescribed, mm-hmm. become untransmissible, and it stops the disease dead in its tracks. Mm-hmm. That being said, one of the other major tools that the Britain believes is going to be used to help stop the transmission of HIV is pre-exposure prophylactics. Yes. And this is where the Canadian story comes in, because every province and territory, except for Manitoba, mm-hmm. covers the cost of pre-exposure prophylactics. Mm-hmm. Essentially, that is the uh, roughly the equivalent of taking HIV meds without having HIV, yeah. and it uh, it stops the HIV from kind of catching up, getting a grip inside you. There is also post-exposure prophylactics. Yes, yeah, which is basically like the morning after pill. And it, it shocks the system. It yeah. is a very high dose. It is apparently one of the worst experiences out there. But if you think you've been exposed, you just poison your body so badly that nothing can survive except for your body. Yeah, which including is, HIV. Including yeah. HIV, yeah. yeah. It's it's miserable, but it it works. And apparently there's there's good evidence that it works exactly as described. Now, which we, is rare in medicine, by the way. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we uh, we talked about pre-exposure prophylactics. I'm just going to say PrEP yeah. from now on, yep. because it's a bit of a tongue twister. We talked about PrEP before, mm-hmm. and essentially there were some major studies, and they found that with everybody that did the study, you know, it worked. If someone has... A high viral load, which mm. means they've got a lot of HIV swimming around in their body. Yep. And they're having intercourse with somebody unprotected who has no HIV in their body. Mm. But that one person who's, who's on the receiving end, let's say, um, is on prep. Yeah. Transmission was zero. Okay. The only time there was transmission 
was when somebody cheated and or didn't take the prep according to the schedule or right. you know human error yeah, is yeah, yeah. where the medicine failed yeah so you know as far as um the reason why this is so important is because if you discover your partner has hiv mm. it is an easy step to avoid you then getting HIV. Yes. Or maybe you're not even, maybe you have HIV and you're not in a relationship mm. or you are single and, you know, you don't want to discriminate against those who do have HIV. Mm-hmm. It's about taking your own sexual health into your own control. Now, PrEP isn't cheap. It was around two to $300 Canadian a month Ooh. for people in Manitoba to get PrEP. And a recent survey um, said that 59% of people said they don't take PrEP because of the cost. Right. And there's been a lot of pressure on Manitoba to actually cover it as a medical, as a preventative medical measure. How old is PrEP? Um, Because in general, the the reason why I ask, in general, Canada has a a thing where uh, pharmaceutical companies can make their money back on the research, but there is a time limit. So I think it's five years. It used to be seven. They reduced it to five. I think it's still five. That after you make a patented drug, you've got five years to extract all the profit out of it that you want. And then other competing pharmaceuticals can make generics. So you're, you're going to get your Shoppers Drug Mart Life brand um, prep at some point in time. And just like with flu medication, if you pick up the, the name brand stuff and the off brand stuff... And you look at the ingredients, it's the exact same thing in the exact same proportions. I don't A lot of people don't know this. You don't have to spend the good money on the good stuff because the off-brand stuff is literally identical. But there is that time limit between when something is released and when you can legally do that. And that is very much a... That's one of the things that the Canadian system does that a lot of the American um, healthcare debaters really don't like because we're like, you know, you can get all the profit you want, but it doesn't last forever. Yeah. Because human but, lives are more important than your 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 profit, but if you don't make a profit, then you're get out of the business, and we need well, people in business. It was it was first approved in 2012, so it's been okay. on the market for 10 years. Okay, it's um, I think it's Gilead is the company that owns um, the mm-hmm. the medication. But it, it's not you're, you're not patenting the concept of prep. You're patenting the specific chemical compound. And the specific method of synthesizing it. Yeah, it is a combination of tenofovir, disoproxil, and emetricip. It's Travada, essentially. <laughs> That's the, the thingy. And Pindoro, I think, is the other. Okay. And, and Descovoy. I mean, they make these smaller names. Mm. They're not any easier than the scientific names. Anyway, the big news here is that Manitoba, after all this pressure, has finally agreed to cover the cost of pre-exposure mm. prophylactics, the, uh, this medication which can stop you from contracting HIV. Is it full coverage? I believe it is going to be... I don't know the exact breakdown, but every other province is pr- pretty much full coverage. Okay. Um, there were, as of September of 2021... So this year, as of September this year, there was already 100 new cases of HIV Mm. in Manitoba. There was 116 in 2020, 119 in 2019. Um, And a big part of that is, first of all, you need to know. You need to know your status to know Mm. whether or not you're transmitting or receiving uh, or have HIV. So Mm -hmm. please 
uh, go out and get tested. You can even order them online and have them shipped to your home address. Mm-hmm. Um, it is better to go into a doctor's office. There's more supports there. Um, so if you are able to get into a doctor's mm-hmm. office, um, make sure that's a part of your regular regular sexual checkup. And it's not just gay men. And this is the bit that frustrated us around the Canadian Blood Services. Oh, yes. It's not just gay men. It's intravenous drug use, which is, of course, all sexualities. Yeah. Um, there were particular populations at risk. I think in Montreal, the Haitian population had a higher than average rate of HIV infection. There is actually, I forgot to, uh, there was a, a study there doing some time ago and I forgot to look up the follow-up, but there was um, hope that PrEP could also prevent transmission from mother to child if a woman is HIV positive. Because there, there are people who are born with HIV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of people being... I don't know about the study. You don't remember... Because I remember child, a few yeah. years ago, they started the study, but I don't remember what the results were. But that's the kind of situation where, if it did work, it would be exactly the kind of thing you would want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're kind of hoping that... Um, We'll see those rates go down in Manitoba mm. from the, you know, probably, it's probably going to be around 115, 120 new cases this year. Right. Um, but we are hoping to see that uh, that drop down from there. There was also an interesting story out of India this week, which is, uh, there was that major court case, the Madras High Court ruling, um, that asked the country to roll back... Um, uh, the, the sorry, the Supreme Court struck down the colonial era um, gay sex ban in right. India. Okay, it been it that the gay sex ban in India had sort of come and gone in terms of will they or won't they remove it? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in twenty eighteen, the the Indian Supreme Court eventually struck down the no gay sex ban, mm-hmm. and India sort of leapfrogged forward in terms of its LGBT rights. Well, the National Medical Commission in India has now issued a directive to all of the uh, medical schools who are teaching the next generation of doctors to actually go in and update all of their teaching materials. Right, okay. So two years later, we're not going to get, you know, a situation where someone has been diagnosed with the homosexual, and uh, which we saw in uh, in South America recently. Mm -hmm. So I think it's interesting because... For India, this is going to give and open up a lot of access to LGBT folks accessing healthcare mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. India, um, at least with newer doctors. Yeah, well, yes. You know what I mean? If I was, uh, you know, a, a queer Indian, I would be looking to see what new doctors are in my area well, I with think this it, updated training. It, it's more an issue of it being reliable because, mm-hmm. like... You know, when you live, especially in southern Ontario, but it's also true to a certain degree here in Ottawa, there are a lot of people from India in the region who are first-generation immigrants. The vast majority of them are hip and groovy when it comes to the gays. Um, It's just, it's not 100% consistent. Like, I've heard a lot of people saying, like, I moved to Canada away from India for a reason, but, like, India is not that bad a place in general, but it's also not institutionalized that there are certain rights that you cannot deny people. Now these are starting to get in there, and it, it's less about relying on the grooviness of individuals. And there's also, like, the urban-rural divide. I've heard a lot of... Uh, and there's also, like, studies and... I mean, India's massive. Like, it's let's massive, not lose yeah. for that. It's also, like, an eighth of the world's population, and it's pretty diverse, incredibly diverse... Different parts, different things. Most of the people I've met are from Mumbai, so I mean, there's definitely that. 
Um, so you're going to get regional things, but this is just an issue of like making it consistent across the board mm-hmm. instead of, you know, it's not hard to find a doctor who's supportive if you live in a major city, as opposed to now, regardless of where you live, you're well, probably yeah. going to find someone. There's been some interesting court cases in India mm-hmm. where a, a number of these court cases have essentially said, you as a doctor not being aware that being gay is not a mental illness mm. is not good enough. Essentially, ignorance is not a justification for normalizing discrimination. Yeah. That's that's what the um, High Court in Madras has said. Yeah, yeah. Being unaware doesn't fly. Yeah. So, you know, this is now the medical school's catching up yeah now they're going to be looking at where the standard of science is you know in terms of western europe in terms of north america Mm. and sort of standardizing across the global understanding of you know sexual health and health Mm -hmm. the world health organization has got a pretty good bar when it comes to these things Mm -hmm. um What's really interesting as well is that in January of this year, the New Delhi Child's Rights Commission recommended the ban on unnecessary intersex normalizing surgeries. Mm. So Canada has long since stopped doing these because, the, well, Canada and the United States, because they kept getting sued. Yeah, you yeah. know, many years later, the child who, who had this unnecessary surgery is like, well, actually, you guessed wrong. Yeah, you guessed wrong. Because yeah. it is a totally a guess with a newborn child. You know what I mean? And there is, the, there. the original argument was the younger you do the surgery, the more likely it is to look quote-unquote, natural later on. But really, so long as you do it before puberty, and most children have a pretty good idea of what their gender is uh, by around five. So Mm -hmm. if if you have a little five-year-old and, you know, you you do chromosomal testing and and their their chromosomes and their self-attested identity match, then you're probably safe to do the surgery before the age of 19, 11, 12. Yeah. And we're talking specifically about intersex people. Specifically intersex, and yes. that differs from trans people because they are born with, you know, maybe a mix of chromosomes, yeah. maybe a mix of genitalia. It's a bit of a bit of everything going on. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's multiple types of intersex. But generally speaking, just delaying it until they're old enough to speak... Well, that's the big thing. They yeah. were talking about the rights of infor- the, the informed consent rights of the child. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you can't have informed consent with a just born baby. Yes. Like, that's not going to work. Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is really interesting because this is India pushing forward very quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know, when we think about the fact that in 2018, you could go to jail for having gay sex. Mm-hmm. And now they're like, yeah, maybe we shouldn't be mutilating babies and, and you know sticking to health advice from Mm -hmm. you know early 1900s it's it's inspiring to see that they are sort of moving so fast on this they are on the cutting edge of a lot of sciences though they really are i mean it's now that doesn't surprise me this song stromais sante um it it jumped out to me because it was what is the name s-a-n-t-e oh it's just sante that's what I said. I maybe I overpronounced the e on the end. <laughs> why do, Why is it in French? You just you just like trail off. You see a word, but you give up two thirds through. It's just like well, you have to bear. It's like in a mind. very non-committal language. I will write the whole word down, <laughs> but I'm not going to commit to the whole word. Like the the sheer volume of vowels in the word Bordeaux. 
I know. It's like, it's Bordeaux. It's two syllables, yet 15 vowels. It's yeah, just... it's pretty crazy. I mean, I can't talk. I mean, Welsh is like if a drunk cat played Scrabble is the Welsh language. Well, yeah. I mean, English and French both share. French is what happens when um, at Italic speakers get invaded by Germanics. Mm. And English is what happens when Germanic speakers gets invaded by Italics. So that's we have this sort of mirror history and we also have this shared thing where like we write words according to how they were pronounced about 800 years ago mm. so the most obvious example is the word knight as in like a guy on a horseback which used to be pronounced knicht so all the letters were pronounced properly in knicht but like same thing with french so this crazy French spelling is basically, it's another language, and it's 800 years ago. And So this is Sant by <laughs> Stromae. It's his new track. Uh-huh. Huge Stromae fans here. Um, your radio isn't broken. I thought it was playing on a record player, and the record was skipping. This is this was an intentional decision. Oh, this is just what he sounds like. And it's, it's, it is very Stromae. Stromae is, so, yeah. Yeah, we will be back it's just after It's very Caribbean this. at first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. À ceux qui n'en ont pas À ceux qui n'en ont pas Rosa, Rosa Quand on fout le bordel, tu nettoies Et toi, Albert Quand on trinque, tu ramasses les verres Céline, Bataire Toi, tu te prends des vestes au vestiaire Arlette, arrête Toi la fête, tu la passes aux toilettes Et si on célébrait ceux qui ne célèbrent pas Pour une fois j'aimerais lever mon verre à ceux qui n'en ont pas À ceux qui n'en ont pas Quoi les bonnes manières Pourquoi je ferais semblant Toute façon on est payé pour le faire Tu te prends pour ma mère Dans une heure je reviens, que ce soit propre, qu'on puisse y manger par terre Trois heures que j'attends, franchement, il est fabrique ou quoi Heureusement que c'est que de faire, appelle-moi ton responsable Et fais vite, elle pourrait se finir comme ça, ta carrière Oui célébrons ceux qui ne célèbrent pas Encore une fois j'aimerais lever mon verre à ceux qui n'en ont pas À ceux qui n'en ont pas Célèbre pas Encore une fois j'aimerais lever mon verre à ceux qui n'en ont pas à ceux qui n'en ont pas Pilote d'avion ou infirmière Chauffeur de camion ou test de l'air Boulanger ou marin pêcheur Un verre aux champions des pires horaires Aux jeunes parents bercés par les pleurs Aux insomniaques de profession 
Et tous ceux qui souffrent de peine de cœur Qui n'ont pas le cœur aux célébrations Qui n'ont pas le cœur aux célébrations Hello and welcome back to Cancria, home of Canada's queer media. My name is still Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. And uh, I have bought the first comic book that I have ever bought today. Oh, yes? Apparently it's going to take six to eight weeks to get here. All right. So I wouldn't have read it until, you know, maybe 2023 by the time uh, there's deliveries. Um But yeah, comic books never really attracted me. And I think I told you, we talked about this before when we mm. talked about the, the son of Kalel, which is the, the, the particular, um, issue mm. of, not issue. What's the thing with the collection of issues? Series? With issue number five of yeah. the Kalel series okay. in this new comic, um, you know, the, I mean, for context, I have a ton of graphic novels at home, but graphic novels, like the Bone series or Viva Vendetta, like I have graphic novels on my bookshelf, but it's a very different beast. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. So I've never bought a comic. I've never been particularly attracted to it. But the uh, this one, the story of the Son of Kalel, it's been rattling around and I finally bit the bullet and uh, bought it. I actually bought the subscription for the full 12 issues. Um, okay. from DC Comics on website. They should make it easier to find where the comics are. Just okay. putting that out there. It's not as intuitive as you would think. Um, but apparently, I am not the only one. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, there was a big media backlash. A lot of, uh, you know, the media was like, oh, why are you browbeating gay things into people? Mm. Um, but it turns out, and we talked about this earlier, yeah. when a new comic gets released, the first issue, you know, comic number one in the series... Always. Usually the bestseller. Yeah, yeah. And there is a comic uh, book tracking company. Even famously hated series, the first one is a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Just in case, because it could be a collector's item. There's that whole thing in the uh, sort of 80s and 90s where like, you know, baseball card collectors and hockey card collectors and first issue comic book collectors. And it was just basically, it was something like uh, uh, one baseball card from the 50s sold for a couple million. And then that just started this collection craze, which also kind of ruined and everything. Beanie Babies. Well, yeah, Beanie... Well, the thing with comic books, though, is that now what happens is if they sell out, they just reprint. So mm. there is no point as a collector. Like, you don't win anything if there's 70,000 copies printed because... Well, that's the point. So <laughs> Comicron estimated that DC sold around 68,000 copies of its first issue mm -hmm. in the Son of Kalal comic okay. when it was first released. Right. And then there was issue number two, and then issue number three, and number four, and it got as far as number four. And number four, they estimate, sold about 40,000-ish uh, uh, copies. Okay. And then the story of the son of Kalel falling for the male journalist and, and is now bisexual. Yeah. That was released in advance of issue number five coming out. And this is Son of Superman. And we talked about this last week. If they made Superman gay, I'd be like, that's weird. That would, yeah, that, I wouldn't buy that. Yeah. That yeah. would be contrived. Yeah. But this is a new character. This yeah. is a whole new person. Yeah, yeah. And I'm kind of curious about how that story develops and, and evolves. And apparently enough people were curious that they reckon that more than 60,000 people have actually bought issue number five. Uh, so more people have bought the sort of coming out 
issue mm-hmm. than the first one. And it's actually driven up reprints of number one, two, three, and four. The, the whole series is just flying off the shelves hmm. ever since the story came out. Um, and DC Comics is obviously thrilled because they're selling quite a large volume. Yep. Even if it's for if it's for good reasons, bad reasons, they're still making money either way. They're making money either way, yeah. but I think what's really interesting here is I think it's comic book readers who are really interested in seeing what the story is and paying out the cash to get it. You know what I mean? I mean, it could also be people who are just throwing their support in the ring, whether or not they're fans. And you're going to see... I mean, usually when something has a controversy in the comic book world... It usually tapers off. So if they're still selling these numbers by issue, somewhere between 12 and 20 is usually when it tapers off, then that means you now have a new permanent base of readers. But it could also just be people having a looky-loo. So um, uh, 12 Reasons Why was incredibly controversial. A lot of people didn't like it. It was kind of poorly written. But halfway through season two, basically every male character in the show made out with somebody else. And the, the writing was so bad that it was basically like 12 Reasons Why was to normal drama what pro wrestling is to professional sports, where it was just so bad it was enjoyable. Mm. So people looped around, and and I don't know if you knew this, but 12 Reasons Why became kind of like this camp classic of like getting drunk with friends and watching it, like The Room or like Mommy Dearest. Um, And you may end up with something like that, like some kind of like, you know, looky, cultural looky-loo where people are looking at it just to see what the big deal is well, about. for me, I'm not going to, I didn't buy these because I want to, I mean, I've always had a passing curiosity because we covered this story three times now. But for me... So with for, regards to comics, you were bi-curious? I was bi-curious, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the reason why I have kind of tuned in and actually spent the money to buy it this time mm. is I was never interested in... Batman or Superman, none of those characters spoke to me. I mm. I read a lot of uh, fiction growing mm. up, um, and none of those none of the superhero characters really spoke to me. But I'm like, you know, maybe I can identify with a bisexual son of Superman. You know, that's a little bit closer than what Superman is. You know what I mean? Like that's a one step closer for me to be able to identify with this character than. Uh, than what it was before. So I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I don't know. I I kind of... That whole narrative of you should read people you identify with, uh, I think you should read people you don't identify with. Because I remember a few years ago, I remember even talking about this on air with you. I read the uh, Number One Detective Ladies Agency series, and I loved it. And I am not a black woman from Botswana, and You're not a detective. I'm not a detective. <laughs> so, I mean, but it was the fact that she was a different person. It was the things that we had in common despite our differences that I really attached with. By the way, that series is the most pleasant thing ever. Because you have all these hostile situations where, like, somebody may or may not be cheating on their spouse. And then Precious Motswana was just like, oh, that's lovely. And it was just everything about it was lovely. And you should well, read it because it was lovely. Even though I have nothing in common with that character. Yeah. You it's say what, that, but... Nearly every single fiction book I have read, mm. with one or two exceptions, mm-hmm. all the characters straight. Every single one of them. Yeah. The entire Harry Potter series, the mm-hmm. entire J.K. Rowling series, I'm pretty sure all of Terry Pratchett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're all straight. Every single one of them is straight. Um, the only one, I actually made an impulse by a chapters recently because it was Jay's gay agenda and it okay. was a coming of age story. Okay. It's 
well worth the read. Nobody dies of AIDS. Nobody gets beaten up. Mm -hmm. It's a pleasant book. Okay. It is a nice book to read. Mm -hmm. And the main character is gay. And a lot of the storylines are queer in a way. Like, there's a drag element and so on and so forth. Mm. And it was just... It was such a pleasant change to read Mm -hmm. a book that I could identify with Hmm. from, you know, bookcases of books that are all straight. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I'm at the point now where reading takes time and I'm like, do I want to give my time to this or do I want to give my time to that? The only books that I've read where I could actually identify with the main character, most of them were written by David Sedaris because they were sarcastic, ill-tempered gay men. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are coming up to close to the end of the show, but I wanted to mention a couple more things. Um, the city of Sydney in Australia has moved towards making Oxford Street the queer cultural and or assigning it a queer cultural historical identity. Um, so the city of Sydney Council on Monday the 18th uh, proclaimed, and I'm just going to quote here from the mayor, tonight I'm putting to you that we also have a social and cultural policy that relates to the very strong history of the LGBTQI community uh, referring to Oxford Street there in Sydney. So this is a major step mm-hmm. for them to acknowledge and then protect the cultural significance of the queer quarter in Sydney. Will there be a plaque? There there has to be a plaque. There has to be a plaque. And I don't know it I don't I don't think it needs to be a um a rainbow plaque. Okay. But I reckon it should be like a polished chrome where if a light catches it, it's just all rainbows. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know that kind of polished chrome? Where it like just shines rainbows everywhere. Just me. Okay. No, it, it, no, my brain's racing because it's not actually chrome. I know what you're trying to say, but it's a different material. But I was going to make a joke about a plinth, but we should move on. We should move on. The last thing we wanted to mention is um, we have been following the Dave Chappelle story, and I think this has been getting enough airtime that we're not going to really dive we're, too. We're deep not going to dwell it. on it. Yeah. I mean, what's what was really interesting to me, my biggest takeaway from this whole drama, you know, Dave Chappelle is a controversial comedian. He said controversial things. He's been controversial for 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. And um, what I think jumped out to me is that Netflix executives underestimated the real-world impact of those programs. Mm. And that involves a lot of um, trans comedians, a lot of trans actors have said, look, mm-hmm. I am getting harassed by people referring to Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm. You know, I his jokes makes laughing at me normal and the thing to do that's funny. Mm. And I don't think the Netflix executives realize that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and they have broadly apologized for just missing the mark and what the real world impact would be if you make a joke about somebody that person becomes a joke and i think that bit was missed you know by the executives the fact that netflix inc issued a statement in support of its own walkout um, still baffles my mind. But they've essentially come around to the idea that, yeah, this was not a perfect rollout. This was this could have been handled better from the you know from day one. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that that was my big takeaway is that Netflix seems to have realized the, the real world impact. One of the things that really jumped out at me is I'm still shocked that this was on Netflix and not HBO. Mm-hmm. Because 
Netflix has a certain tone to it. A lot of their family-friendly stuff, even some of their more their adult stuff, has a very specific flavor of politic to it. And Chappelle just doesn't fit into that. Whereas, like, if if this exact special as is was on HBO, people would be like, "Well, HBO also did Game of Thrones." Like, you know, they they do riskier stuff. Netflix yeah. usually plays it safe. They usually. They usually do stuff in a very specific progressive tone. And I don't want to say this is anti-progressive, but Chappelle was just, he's from a specific flavor of comedy and nobody else of that flavor is on Netflix. It's just, there's something like not alien to comedy, but alien to Netflix. It's interesting you say that because a lot of people were talking, I think Dave Chappelle had like an 80 or a hundred million dollar deal with Netflix. Mm. But they paid $26 million to make Squid Games. Okay. And now Squid Game became, it blew every other Netflix show out of the water. They yeah. estimate that it's made over $900 million for Netflix most, since it got released. Most of the really successful Netflix shows are ones where they make them and then just put them on with yeah. very little but fanfare. But they put them on in 33 languages at the exact same time yeah, globally. Yeah, yeah. Like it was a flick of a switch, major cultural impact with Squid Game. Um, and I'm just waiting to see how many Squid Game guards show up for Halloween in costume. I oh, think it's going to be such an easy go-to costume. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting to see the comparison of like the amount of money they put into this mega South Korean show and mm. how much they gave Dave Chappelle. Mm. And I don't know. It'll be. I think Netflix execs are going to be scratching their head a little bit as they move forward. Mm. Well, that's all we got time for. I have been Luke Smith, and I've been Sebastian. We are playing out with Cotaparets Ensemble Toujours, and uh, we'll be back next week. All right. Are you going to try? Are you going to correct my pronunciation? Oh my god! Well, it's Cœur de Pirate, and on s'aimera toujours. And that's what I said. Yeah. I said on s'aimera toujours. Like I was pretty close. No, you weren't. All right. <laughs> I'm Luke Smith, and I'm in Sebastian. Thank you for listening. J'espérais reprendre un peu mon souffle, mais le mal comptait ses proies. Je l'imagine encore à mes trousses. Tu es entré dans la danse. J'éclipse et ce qui me reste. Les autres n'ont plus d'importance. Tes dires deviennent ma destinée. Ce qu'on dit
Ce que l'on ne connaît 